um, yeah, I remember Michael coming back into the front group because we were there for GC and um, why has Michael got a seat bag on his bike? That's strange. <laughs> Okay, everyone, you heard him. He's back. Get comfortable and listen to our great part two episode with Cadell Evans here on Bobby and Jens. Okay, folks, well, you asked for it and you're going to get it. For the first time in Bobby and Jens podcast history, we are going to do a follow-up, immediate follow-up, with our man, our buddy, Cadell Evans. Cadell, welcome back to Bobby and Jens. Oh, thanks for one for having me back. And, you know, I always like to do um, <laughs> pioneering uh, adventures and be the first to do, well, in this case, be the first to be the first guy back. Well, I'm proud of that. Thanks for having me back, one. Great to see you guys again. And... Um, well, let's, let's let's delve back into our conversation where, where where we were leading through the histories and annuals of cycling. Yeah, man. Um, one thing that I really regretted not talking more in depth about the last time was stage seven of the 2010 Tour of Italy. So, hey, listen, gravel, the gravel scene is big. Uh, the incorporation of non-paved or gravel roads in road races seems to be happening quite often these days. But you were you were in one of the first kind of races where it was considered gravel, and that was such a epic stage. You were in the world champion jersey, uh, the mud, the grime. You guys, no one had their their glasses on because there was so much dirt flying everywhere. You could barely tell who was who. But, you know, you were up there as an OG um, kind of gravel guy in, in Grand Tours. So, A, give us a little bit of information or memories of that stage. And then what do you think about gravel sections or unpaved roads in, in Grand Tours? <clears throat> um, if I um, think back to the, the 2010 Giro and... It was my first Grand Tour with BMC, amongst um, one thing, and um, I we we prepared really well for that that particular stage, and um, I prepared really well for it. Of course, reconnaissance material selection, where this whole strategy and where to change bikes and so on and so on. And that, the, the key thing for me on that was probably actually changing bikes right at the very last moment was um, made a huge difference. And it poured rain all the day before, which probably really helped me. Um, being an ex-mountain biker, I um, was a little bit in my element, if I may say so. Being an ex-mountain biker, going onto the road, becoming a Grand Tour rider, and here I find myself in the Grand Tour slipping around, slipping around in the mud. Oh really? I I was really in my element. Um, most of all, um, yeah, like the the probably the key thing to the <clears throat> in terms of strategy was other than course reconnaissance, knowing the course, having the legs, etc., staying calm, <clears throat> being at complete ease, being covered in filth, and my come my old mountain bike tricks: big chain ring, big at the back, so the chain can't fall off. Um, spraying your front derailleur with water to keep it free, and you know a few little bits and pieces like this. Um, sorry, keeping the chain tensioned so when you're going over the corrugations and things, it can't fall off. Um, I'm showing my '90s mountain bike experience. There. I love it. Um, this is this is great. Oh yeah, these are just the little things. But for me, it was just um, like I, I do these things instinctively, not like you and something you have to instruct someone to do it, and maybe someone who doesn't have the experience needs to be told over the radio, remind by. Uh, race director or something but this was I was just there in it and then um we um I remember afterwards I sort of I sort of had this little trick on um on people through no intention of tricking people but um I'd set up the one bike for the road section high wheels all aero normal tires everything but then I had another one with like George's um George Hinkaby's Paris-Roubaix wheels and tires and everything on it on the car and um i remember like high road were looking looking at what i was riding and afterwards they told me oh look cadell's done the course reconnaissance he's riding high wheels so we'll all go ride high wheels as well and then about a kilometer before the first gravel section i switched bikes and and they're like oh 
you know, they weren't very happy. They realized what my, what I was doing then. And that just goes, you know, they, when you're copying at school or whatever, that's sometimes not a good idea to do. But um, And then I had another bite prepared for that. The, the big thing being, like in Roubaix, um, obviously the cobbles are very rough. The Stradibianca stage of the Giro, the, the, the gravel's very rough. But you do a lot of smooth, fast road to get there. And, of course, if you're riding a bike that's got heavy tyres and heavy not aero rims and things, it's all extra energy you consume. Whereas if you can ride a fast bike there and then switch to the bike perfectly, you've saved a fair, you've still got a fair bit left in the legs. And I think the stage, I think it was even short because of landslides or something because of the overnight rain or something. Um, so it wasn't long, but yeah, by the time you get to the end of those stages, just the, um, yeah, everyone's, if they're not running on empty, they soon will be, um, as we all know from, from riding those really big stages in Grand Tours. And that was sort of part of the strategy. And I just remember for the the actual, um, like to win the stage, um, <clears throat> we went in course reconnaissance and we rode into town and then um, we rode to the finish and then... I was with a couple of my teammates. I remember, I think Steve Marabito was with me. Fabio Baldato was our director. And they went and had a coffee and things. And I went back and I just rode the finish. And I found this little circuit where I could ride the last two or three Ks. And I rode it, I think, six or seven times. Around and around and around and around. <clears throat> so when I came into the race and it's pouring rain. And normally you don't lead out a sprint from a K and a half to go or anything. But I knew the narrow road that led to a 90 degree turn in, at the end of this tiny narrow street in this old village in uh, Montecatini, oh, sorry, not Montecatini, um, Montalcino, and um, <clears throat> and I led all the way into this because I wanted to lead into this last corner, and I think Kuniger was on my wheel, and I was leading in, and of course, obviously, it wasn't the right thing, and I could sense some hesitation over the radio. Fabio Baldato was uh, on the radio, and he's like, what am I doing leading out the sprint? Of course, him being a sprinter. But in my mind, I was like... If anyone can follow me through this last corner, they deserve to win. Um, and so I just went through the, didn't touch the brakes through the last corner, and it was one of the easiest finishes of my career, actually. And, or easy, easiest from that last bit was the easiest sprint for a win uh, that I probably ever did. So, um, weather was pretty bad. Bobby talked about it. Did you have to change like different rain jackets, vest for the final or to get there? Did you change gloves? Was it cold? Could you actually control the bike? Did you have cold fingers, stiff fingers? How was like the overall situation for you? And in terms of temperature, were you like super cold or was it still okay? I think it was one of those, the Giro, um, I don't know how many Giros you guys rode between you, but one thing with the Giro that's really tricky is you go from extremes. You're like 25 degrees and really humid and then it starts raining and it's like 8 degrees and you're just freezing cold. Um, <clears throat> and, and it changes really, really quickly. Um, and I, I think on that day, it's still in Tuscany, so you're a little bit further south. It was raining and it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't one of those freezing cold um, moments. But I think just if I think back to the photos, I think I had like long finger gloves and a vest on. And the, the thing with the vest, I remember, my only, my only grudge I can ever hold against George, and this will be the only thing ever in all the, all the years of uh, teammates and friendship. I remember the zip on my jersey was stuck, so I couldn't take it off or do it up or anything because of the mud, actually. And um, I just remember this clearly because obviously there's been a few photos published about that race and the zip sort of halfway there. Was there. I was like, that's right, it was stuck. I couldn't, I couldn't move it. But, but anyway, um, but that's, um, it wasn't, wasn't cold, but I, I remember like Matt Goss was there and he was there, he was there, he was there. And <clears throat> he just went hunger flat. I was like, oh, what happened to you? But I don't think he was appropriately dressed, or, or for whatever reasons. But um, but it was it was mainly just so I suppose psychologically um, intimidating, just because of the mud and you can't see and these things. But of course, having been an ex mountain biker, I was so used to this and you know, washing your glasses with your water bottle to put them back on and not be able to see for a bit, and then they come clean again and and this and that. So that for me was just yeah, that was just in my element so to speak but also just I was so used to it it wasn't a big de wasn't a big deal well when when I um you know I remember watching that stage and then you know during the research of this I went back and and watched it again and my question you kind of mentioned it with Matt Ghost uh having the old uh Frangal or the bonk there 
now that I know that you did that on purpose, that last kilometer and a half, because I think I think we were all going, hey, wh- wh- is Cadell going to take this from the front the whole time? I just started with with what I know now and my eyes now. I'm like, man, these guys were all on absolute empty, you know, because it's a it's a hard stage, it's a technical stage. You got those vests on, you can't get in your pockets to get to your food. So my thing was, man, I mean, these guys were just all on the limit in terms of their fueling. Um, do you remember that at all being part of that equation or or am I just totally off here? Because I, I, know, I remember the few times that I bonked were the, those days that it was A, technical, and B, raining and, and a little bit cold. Because the last thing you wanted to do was take your hands off your bars and dig around in your pockets and, you know, with, with long-fingered gloves on. But when, when you yeah. took that sprint from so far out and basically just rode guys off your wheels, I was like, man, they, I think everyone was just on the limit with the hunger flat here. Yeah, it's um, yeah. I think I remember I had a pretty um, really consistent protocol in, especially in the Grand Tours and things. And I'm guessing, um, like you said, people sort of underestimate it. It's like, what's the matter? Just get some food out of your pocket. But when you're so cold, or you're on cobbles, or in the gravel, just to take your hands off the bars, like you said, and get to your pocket, you don't, you don't get many of those moments. And what normally happens is you have a section of cobbles, you have a section of gravel, and immediately after, everyone's grabbing food out of their pockets getting in position, grab some food, take a drink. And even then the same thing, mountain bike thing, you take go to take a drink and it's covered in mud, the top. So you sort of like Ugh. wipe it on your jersey and squirt a bit of the dirt away and hope to not get uh, too much mud in with your energy drink or whatever. Um, especially on those stages, I, we had a, um, a long, long chain, uh, carbohydrate drink and, um, which I think probably all the teams are using now, but um, we were sort of one of the first to take this up. I was working with a uh, dietitian nutritionist from, um, or had worked with a dietitian nutritionist from MAPE Sport. Um, but the, the bottles had about 500 calories each. So, um, <clears throat> and because it was this particular long chain carbohydrate, you sort of didn't go, or you could drink a lot of, the, of this liquid and not have a bad stomach. And so one, I was getting a lot of calories through that and I always used to use, um, I still use them now sometimes in uh, long events because of course I don't have the endurance, but it's a um, MCT uh, gel made by a Swiss company. I um, can't remember the brand name of the, uh, the name of the company now, but they're like um, high fat gels. So again, they're really high calories. And what I found, especially in the cold, um, you have to remember, as 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 we know, but people who um, may not have ridden these tours, we go to these and we get as lean as we can and ready to go up the mountains. But then we get hit by the cold, and we're like, we've got we 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 spend a lot of energies and calories just to stay warm, and that can often put us over the limit. And and that those ones, uh, um, fat eating a bit of fat helped me with the cold weather. Did you ever what I sometimes did at uh, extreme conditions like that? I would not put the bars into my jersey because as bobby said it's the rain jacket it's your fat gloves you you can't get your hands in there i just stuck them underneath my race shorts on top of my tie so i could at least see him and get him easier out you know had him under my under my race shorts uh, like shorts. one left one right at least i knew okay that's gonna get me at least 60 kilometers without any worries uh, i got you know these bases covered did you ever do something like that uh, I, I didn't put them there because I, I sort of had a, uh, I, it annoyed me having things there. Or yes, like it is annoying. Correct. Controlling your arm. Yeah, I, I didn't like. You know, I always took my chance to have it um, in my back. But I had been. I, I remember in races <clears throat> for the same reason. You have to ask your teammate to get something out of your pocket for you because your hands are too cold or, or like racing with an injury or something. You had a crash or something. And uh, you can't get food out of your own. But can you get can you get the Mars bar out of my pocket? And George or Steve Marabido, my my closer teammates. <laughs> What's the matter with you? I'm, I'm so cold. <laughs> Open it for me. Ah, oh, Mars bar. Ah, oh, warm up. Ah, oh, go again. And like you just because you just need a bit more quick, really quick, a lot of calories quickly. But um, I um I, there and 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 those ones when it was so cold like that with the high calorie drinks you could. No matter how cold you were, you could always get, you could always drink at least, mm-hmm. and even when it's very technical, um, except for a stream like mountain bike downhill or something. Of course, that's different. But yeah, yeah. Well, um, 
So to get back of, to part two of that first question, uh, what, do you, what do you think about all these additions of unpaved or, or gravel roads in, in Grand Tours? Because it seems to be happening more and more. It's sure exciting for the fans. I know it's a lot of work for mechanics. I mean, you kind of told us that, you know, you, before this even was a thing, you went out and saw the course, you changed your equipment, which means more work for the mechanics, you know, more work for the Swan years to get you those feeds to make sure that you're properly fueled. But um, what do you, what do you think? I mean, now we're retired, right? Like I never did a gravel section in, in a, in a race, and I don't think I would have liked it back then. But now, I mean, you mentioned gravel on the weekends. I'm there. Like, it's fantastic. But even saying that, I'm not sure if I would want that if I was, like, going for a podium spot in a, in a Grand Tour. So what, what is your opinion on this new spectacle of excitement for the fans, but maybe, maybe a, a bigger risk and a lot more work for the the staff of around the teams if i can give my answer from um kind of two three perspectives um one when i was a rider two now as post riding but a race organizer and three as a fan of cycling now and a keen still keen cyclist um one as a rider i remember having this discussion with uh Zominyan. he was director of the the giro years years gone by and um Going uh, with these gravel stages, and and I think this might have been in preparation of going to the Giro in 2010. And my thing as a rider was, as a GC rider, you do you're playing your whole whole year round event, and if you're going for a GC at the Giro, and they put in some gravel stages or something, and this is before the tour ever dwelt, dealt into that area. Uh, or you go GC at the tour, you do all your planning, you plan everything you can, but then you go to like the gravel stage and you puncture in the wrong time and the cars are five minutes behind and you just basically throw away your GC chances, which is kind of your season because a three-week tour, you, 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 you prepare for one and that might be your only chance. So my, my thing to Zominyan was, uh, Angelo Zominyan, was it? I'm just going off memory now. Um, my thing was, include the gravel stages because it's great for interest it's great for the tv but not so extreme that it can put out a gc rider on bad luck obviously a bad bike rider they can't do it but just just not to add that lottery element into a, a grand tour that was my thing that we as a rider was my my thing we should have been aware of or because once it once it's um it becomes a lottery or like a free-for-all crash fest in the sprints or something and it shouldn't be like that that's not sport anymore um then as a, a race organizer same thing we have a lot of gravel roads here by the great ocean road and it can give us so many options for um course options and different loops that we could do but uh, my race director scott sunderland is like oh a lot of people don't like that and they travel all the way from europe to come here and they if if a sprinter or something comes here and they puncture on that section of gravel and they can't come back it's sort of like well, why would i come back so us as a race organizer being in australia so far away it's a little bit adds that lottery lottery, lottery element to it so so far so far we've chosen not not to include gravel sections of road as a fan of cycling now as a fan of watching the pros on tv um, as someone who loves to ride in the gravel themselves, still, I started on gravel. I rode a bit even when <laughs> I was racing, and I, I, of course, I still ride now. Um, I think it's something, and in road cycling, we should adapt more and include um, because, well, everyone likes it. It's in the interest. The pro riders maybe don't like it um, because of this lottery element. So it, it needs to be careful in race organisation, not have not have a gravel section that's leading into the last kilometre or the last three k's to a sprint finish or something. That would be make a, a real lottery section if you're laying out a lay, laying out a race course. But I just think for the future of us as cyclists and the future of cycling and the next generations to come, we're going to have to ride more and more on the gravel because let's face it, there's going to be more traffic, there's going to be more population in the world, there's going to be more risk of riding on the road and and that's that's unfortunately where i see road cycling going and uh, maybe it's the same in america but we just had a string of like young guys out training on country roads here in australia young hopeful cyclists and things and they're just getting hit by cars and they're and this is just 
this is just nothing anyone wants. And, and so to go and ride on the gravel, to go and be away from traffic, not just for the fact that you're in a beautiful place away from traffic, it's, um, I think it's something we're going to have to adapt to because in 20 years' time it might be the only way you can, you can ride or, or a ro- the only roads that you can close in, in the future. Well, also maybe adding to that, um, especially if you do the Tour de France, there are so many road furniture nowadays, you know. At the city entrance, they make the road smaller with like these concrete uh, flower pots. Um, there are speed bumps and roundabouts <laughs> and whatnot, you know, traffic dividers. It, it actually, it, in, in the future, it might become safer to stay away from all that and go on a basically clean gravel road it might be even safer for the riders because at least there they know there's no unexpected obstacle in in the middle of the road that's 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 also true and and i totally agree what you're saying even in the periods while we were racing you saw uh, an, an increase with the amount of things on the road and they're meant to well maybe they do help for road safety and pedestrian safety But, you know, when you're racing Dauphiné on things there around the area of Sauvoir, I remember, the, uh, you have the speed humps coming into the off-camber roundabouts. And so when it's raining, it's like <laughs> on the apex of the corners, the most off-camber section. And it's just like, oh, this is just, mm-hmm. you, you, you can nearly not go through it quickly because the chance of crashing is so high. Um And that's, yeah, maybe safer for cars, but then for when you're as a bike rider, you're like, this is just a disaster. All those poles in the uh, Vuelta, on the because when you're always on the freeway and they have those poles that are quite low uh, just before the on and off ramps, how many people hit those in the Vuelta and there's their off-season gone because they've sort of just gone to move out in the wind and <laughs> they're like two feet high, not even a meter high because you can't see them from behind. Things like that, you, you as a bike rider, you wonder why they put them on the road. But I have to say, as a... As a, as a road user, where, where I'm based in Switzerland, they just keep yeah, putting these flower pots and these concrete blocks in the middle of the road to make two lanes, one lane. And yes, it does slow the traffic down. But of course, if you, if you, if you crash your car into it or, or ride your bike into one of those concrete blocks, it's going to slow you down very, very quickly. No doubt. No doubt. But um, so one of our listeners asked me about this or, or commented and I'll mention it. Like in, in the 2008 tour of California, I had a flat tire. There was no car behind me. So I kind of chased down this guy that was on a bike path and I forcefully asked him for his wheel. Like basically he was going to give me that wheel regardless. And, and God bless him. I, you know, we got his wheel back to him. We got him, you know, some team swag. Um, Jens, you know, he was on a little kid's bike in the Tour de France, for goodness sake, until he could get a replacement bike. I remember Mick Rogers down at the Tour Down Under, he had to take a bike from a spectator to, to finish the race. What was the craziest thing that ever happened to you that you had? Did you have any anything like this happen where you just had to pivot and, and, and make do with what you got? Did you ever have any crazy story, either if it was on the mountain bike or on the road bike, anything similar to that? Because, I mean, it, it's it's crazy when you think Yen's doing a you know part of the stage of the Tour de France on a little kid's bike. I, I was in the I was in that race with Michael Rogers actually. Now that you mention it, and funnily enough, the guy who loaned him his bike, I, I used to race with him as a mountain biker, so I kind of knew him a bit. It was weird, but. Um, yeah, I remember Michael coming back into the front group because we were there for GC. And um, why has Michael got a seat bag on his bike? That's strange. <laughs> I had no idea because he, he was he was Matt Bay and he was riding a Colnago but had a seat bag. And, and then he went back and adjusted the seat. Well, what's the matter going on here? But <laughs> what are the chances? There's a, <laughs> a spectator on the side of the road. He had, his, he had his bike in his car, actually. Hang on, I've got a bike here. It's a 56. <laughs> Here, take mine. I just happened, you know, here's a spectator with a C40 Colnago was the thing at the time, 2002. <laughs> How many of those are floating around in the, in the back of cars ready with the tires pumped up, ready to go? But uh, I, I was in that, I was in that race and then afterwards we understood what happened. But um, those crazy, crazy moments, I, I didn't have one where I sort of changed a bike or rode someone else's bike, I think. And one thing, I um, I could never take a bike from... Or, I t- it was hard for me to take a bike from someone else because coming from Australia where we ride on the left, I always had oh, the motor brakes, right-hand front. 
and I, I could never change and I tried to change but it's of course when you need to brake in an emergency you grab a handful of front brake and you crash to avoid a crash or you brake to avoid a crash and you end up crashing because you um, so so even just to change bikes for me but of course for the mechanics and and the, the, the cable cable routing doesn't work routing as you'd say in America um, because it's designed for the other way but um, of course we disc brake so it doesn't matter so much but um, I I, I not that comes to mind like that. I, I remember a stage, if um, not nearly as dramatic as, as Yen's riding a little kid, kids by the Tour de France, but I was in one of those really wet, rainy, rainy stages of a, it was a race in Germany. And um, I went back to the car and Alan Piper was uh, director. It was, it was, I think, his first year as director and we were both at Lotto. And he was eating some chocolate, and here I am freezing cold. Like, give me some of that, and he gave me this piece of chocolate. Oh, lint, eighty-five percent. Oh, wow. And um, and then he held up the packet, and I'm like, oh, guess that right? It was eighty-five percent. Long story short, um, I get into the final. It was uphill finish, and Jens might remember the stage better. I just remember it was Jan, Ulrich, and Jorgiaksh, and me. And they were watching each other. And in the end, I won this stage after eating after eating the director's chocolate in the car in the pouring rain. I thought, wow, this is fantastic. But but I never had that really no bizarre bike change. Fortunately, did you then ever had like any bike? Uh, sorry, any fan encounters? You remember? Just to give you an example. Me once, I lead up the Schleck Brothers and Zastro into LPS. Of course, I get dropped, and I'm all by myself. Dropped from the front group, not yet in the gruppetto. So I'm all by myself. Somebody, suddenly, somebody yells, Yes, I love you. I want your baby. And I look over. It's a 55-year-old man with a big beer belly that's just running next to me and yelling, Yes, I love you. I want your baby. And I was just laughing. Wow. I almost fell off my bike. Well, I was just laughing so hard. I mean, the whole crowd was just laughing. The guy just running next to me goes I love you I want your baby and obviously you know he's a man so we were just laughing so you had anything like that any fan encounters when he run next to you and oh, please say no <laughs> not nearly as good as that you've got you've had these experiences I know we're, we're a bit boring we're riding for GC at the front we sort of have everything so planned and calculated and plan B and plan C and plan T we don't have these yeah, we have three spare bikes on the car, not 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 like a little kid's bike on the side of the road, hoping. Jeez, jeez, yeah. And we're not listening. We're not listening to the fans because it might have been two thousand eight where I had to follow the Schleck brothers and Sastra Sastra on my own, maybe on the, on up the west. Yeah, I guess it's different when you just hear right. You got to be focused every single moment in the race. Most well, of the let's let's yeah. let's you know kind of bookend this before we move into what you're doing now. Tell us a little bit about the last year or two of your, your career and why you decided to retire at the Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race. I mean, you were still pretty darn competitive. I mean, looking at you now, it looks like you could step into the peloton and still, you know, be be a force. <laughs> but what was it that, you know, I'm done and I want to do it at this race? And yeah, let us, you know, let us in that 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 last year and a half, two years of, of uh, your professional cycling career? Um, after um, 2011, the tour and what was my, my best year, um, 2012, I contracted a virus and that was yeah, leading into it was the London Olympics. And, and so I went back to the tour with the number one on my back with big expectations and, and so on. But um, since February that year, I was just sick and exhausted and just having a terrible time. And I didn't know what the matter was. Us as endurance athletes know the poorest excuse that we can give is um, is I'm tired. That just doesn't stand in our... So here I am waking up every morning exhausted. But I remember in February I was sleeping like 12 hours a night and waking up and just didn't want to ever get a bed. I just wanted to stay in bed. And what's something the matter with me? But <clears throat> being tired as an endurance athlete is, is just the poorest excuse you can give. So you don't even think about giving it. Anyway, so I was training and going through this, and anyway, by um, thanks we had uh, Max, Te Max Texter, Tester as our doctor in the BMC team, and um, <clears throat> he went and spoke to some uh, virologists and um, some specialists in in that area, and because I'd been travelling to some <clears throat> sort of strange places and things, and um, in the end they were running some tests, and I'd been racing with um, Epstein Barr. <clears throat> 
And um, <clears throat> his advice was, you've got this, I was at, uh, I was at the, um, sorry, not, not the Tour of Colorado, but the um, Colorado Challenge. Uh, I can't remember yeah. We call it the Tour of Colorado, but the correct name. And um, <clears throat> he said, look, these things of blood tests have come back. Um, there's a flight book for you to go home. Go home, sit on your couch for three months, and then we'll do another blood test, and we'll take it from there. And I was like, here I was trying to... I'd just been to the Olympics uh, and the Tour and the Olympics, performed dismally, and and then uh, I got I get told this, and this was like, well... So um went and sat on the couch for two or three months, and... Had, having just become a father, that was time appreciated, and and then um, started training again, and like I think I even came back and did some races, but um, that was the start of it. And then the following year, of course, you're sort of like, oh, hang on, this isn't. Maybe I'm not that physique that I can just do as many cases that I can fit in a day and as much intensity as I want. And um, <clears throat> and then I felt in 2013, I had paid for my efforts of racing when I was basically I had chronic fatigue and I'd raced and just had to push myself so hard just to be as competitive as I was. It, it taxed me even more other than also having a virus. Um, so 2013, prepared for it, just being a little bit more careful. And I thought I'd, it cost me 2012, my efforts cost me 2012 and I paid in 2013, but I felt like well, maybe if I just be careful, like I'll recover from that and I'll come back and another season, another off season, another period of rest and start again. And then we come into 2014 and a few things started falling apart um, and, and um, particularly um, not having the confidence of the team and um, other, other, other riders in the team coming on the rise. And, and, and so then yeah, the whole dynamics of the team and a team leader started to change and... Um, and so that sort of, um, <clears throat> on a professional level, was I suppose a little bit of a, a decline, at least in in <clears throat> in those that once had a great deal of confidence in me. Um, and then uh, in the meantime, we were coming up with this um, concept, and and the Victorian government, the state government here, wanted to have the idea of having a, a one day race here. And they asked me, hmm, what should we do? How do we want to do it? And in to sort of thank me for my efforts and and so on. They wanted to ha they wanted to name it after me, or they wanted to use my name with, in the title of the race. So, so I was like, oh, thank. That's very nice. It's a little bit. Too, it's a little bit too much for me, but um, that's very nice. And and so that was my my idea was the the distance, the timing of the race, and then trying to get that point in the calendar and so on, and um, and had to fit in with the racing here and and for the Europeans to be able to come here particularly Europeans, but also North Americans, to be able to come here, do some good quality racing, good training, and, and, and prepare well for the for the European season coming after, where, of course, you have the weather differences and so on. And um, and that was um, that was the start of that. And, of course, coming <clears throat> towards the end of my career, I wanted to I wanted to continue racing. And, um, but um, long story short, Jim, Ock Jim Ockowicz decided for me, um, there's not a place for you on the team, you should stop. <laughs> Oh, oh, okay. Um, well, I could find another team, or um, <laughs> um, I remember going back at the when I first got to know Jim. He said to me, "Oh, when it's time to come to retire, I'll tell you." <laughs> of course, not thinking of this because I wanted to continue. And and I think one thing when you get later in your career, you also become you, you become very resistant to. Um, being told what to do and and believing what people tell you because you sort of get very well conditioned <clears throat> not listening to people not listening to critics and things i.e you become very stubborn but um as it turned out in the end i was like yeah i could go to another team that wouldn't be a problem i could do another year i'm going to stay in europe and and um for for family reasons i was going to stay in europe anyway um but in the end i went and spoke to some people and it's like oh you know what for once in my life, I'm going to take the path of least resistance rather than prove myself to the world again and go through all this again and having been trying to prove myself to the world many, many times in my career, but after illness, injury, and particularly this time after illness and things, and it's like only one little thing will go wrong and I, I, and that could bring everything unstuck. I'm just going to take the path of least resistance here. and And then, but of course I had my race coming and I was like... I don't want to retire in the end of that season when a month into the season, the year after, there's my own race. So, uh, Jim, can we just 
do something here. Can I have a contract for one month? That's all I want, one month. And I'll prepare with everything I've got for the races in Australia. I'll do that and I'll do my race. It'll be my last race of my career. And it was for me personally, what better way to go out of other than I wish I'd sort of maybe had a go in the last kilometre or something. But then in, in my in my own own race and fighting there right to the end for the win, across the line, fifth place cramping and um <clears throat> but um to fight like I gave absolutely everything right to the very last race and that really was for me that, that passing that finish line was okay, this is the next chapter in life. I was completely ready for it and I think we touched on the other time I spoke I I was always motivated in my the work I did, how I prepared for the races, when I raced, how hard I pushed myself was um, I've got this fantastic opportunity to be a professional cyclist. I had two opportunities in mountain bike and then on the road, but I don't want to I don't want to go away from the sport with any bitterness. I don't want to go away from the sport with any regret. And cross the line, cramping. Okay, I've done this for I was just coming up to twenty, nearly twenty years as a professional biker. I'm so like. Okay, that's enough. Now it's time to go on. So now the race has a good history, um, and because of the COVID situation, it, it has been cancelled. What are the future projects there? Um, are we going to see it coming back uh, next year? Can we hope for it at least? Um, help us out here with some information about that. Um, 2023, we're almost certain to have it. There's been, um, from the Australian government side, they had a real very cautious approach to COVID and I think uh, Melbourne had 15 cases of COVID in October last year or something, September last year. So they call, closed down the whole city. It's population four and a half million or something. Um, they were very, very cautious. and um, But they've changed that mentality now. So the thing is just to organise a race, you can't do it while you're like in lockdown, closed in your house. You need to go and meet people, police, local governments, potential sponsors, uh, partners in the race, and but you you can't even do it. You can't do any of that when you're in in lockdown. That was a big part of having a race, even for this this year, even though um, it was mostly open. Uh, we didn't have international travel. We saw with the whole Djokovic thing that there's still a bit, <clears throat> it's not quite open borders, but now it's only just opening to international tourists, uh, if not now, very shortly in Australia. So like I, as an Australian, I could come back in January, but um, but foreigners could not. And then, of, of course, with the contact tracing and things that Australia does, my, my thing as a race organiser is, If they had no COVID here, because you're making these decisions six months before, and we bought COVID, <coughs> us as cyclists bought it to Australia, they're going to find out, and that's going to be on my <laughs> to put to put like the whole state in six months of lockdown or something. That's not a responsibility that I wanted to take. But um, now that mentality's changed, so 2023 will will um, certainly, almost certainly, be able to have a race. And having had time away, we're motivated to do. Bigger and better things. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, you can get six print and digital issues of Peloton magazine, exclusive membership content from Bellenews.com, access all the premium content from the whole Outside family, including Yoga Journal, Backpacker, Ski, Outside Magazine, and many others. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events, access to Gaia, GPS, and trail forks, as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value in one $99 annual subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com forward slash outside plus and enter BJPOD25, all one word, lowercase at checkout you will receive our special 25% discount and make a good deal great now back to our chat with Cadell okay so Cadell other than being a race promoter what else is Cadell Evans doing these days what other little projects do you have going on um, from the end of my career, I stayed within uh, BMC realm and being involved with events like the um, uh, Grand Fonda we were doing, La Tap, La Tap Thailand, which was um, 
that that was one of the one of the one of the more memorable fun events. Um, they're, they're all good, but being in Phuket and riding around was just I was amazed how beautiful it was there. Um, and being involved within the BMC company and testing and and um, not actual design but being involved and going through that process has been very interesting being in the bike industry and visiting the uh, visiting I understand the whole manufacture process and the assembly and how bikes come together that's been a really uh, interesting learning experience um obviously with the pandemic and no travel and and uh, that's that's all been uh, reduced and on the same time um becoming in the I really felt as a racer you're in the barriers um then I stopped and I was doing sort of involved in everything outside of the bar- barriers, bike industry, race organization. Um, it's It's been a really interesting and learning experience and race organization as well. The amount of things that go on just to put on a race, it's, it's ridiculous. Like like anything worth doing well, it's um, there's so much more to it than you see from the outside. But same thing, dealing uh, dealing. Um, with local government, police, road closures. Um, the, I, I didn't realise before I, I, I became involved, involved in my own race, the Great Ocean Road Race, just like how sometimes you're quite limited on the course that you want to use because of um, emergency services, access to certain areas and traffic flow and public holidays and things like this that are just, um, as, a, as, a, as a racer, you, you, you don't think about that. But of course, when you go to into the event planning, it's, uh, they're all steps that you, um, yeah, you have to have to deal with and plan for and organize around. And, um, and that's also been a, a very interesting experience. Um, I'm still based in Europe, which is coming back to Australia and working, of course, on my race. But uh, in the future, we'll be looking to bring the family back to Australia and our our two young kids are hopefully be able to start starting school in Australia here soon. And I've just taken a position starting officially last month, uh, Partington CC, uh, lightweight meal, wheel manufacturer here in Geelong, um, <clears throat> which is a small company that's yeah coming on to coming just just recently come into the market publicly and that same thing been a, a very interesting process and sitting down with the engineers and well they're clever guys that's that's oh it's all, all learning experience and i think as all of us who are cycling fans we look at our equipment and i always asked how why <laughs> this seat color and that paint color or that paint selection or this is chromed or that's anodized how why and now now understanding all those hows and whys behind and the decision-making process that goes into that and ultimately ends up as the bikes that we both ride has been, uh, I, f- I found it a really interesting, fascinating uh, learning curve. So, Keda, we talked about um, the projects you involved uh, with now. How is the project uh, going, um, the second Australian Tour de France winner? Is there any hopeful young talents you would uh, know that could go all the way? Or what's the situation in Australian cycling? And how close is anybody to the dream of becoming the next Cadell? Um, we're certainly keeping an eye on things and uh, being coming back here to Australia, being a little bit closer to that and um, some of the, the um, <clears throat> talent we um we've had a little difficulty with especially of course um covid and the travel restrictions we we couldn't send juniors to any of the world championships and in any international uh competition for two years um that's been a bit of a uh, a slowdown on the on the talent flow but of course that's the talent flow that will make them in 10 years time but um Obviously, the the person closest to being a Tour de France winner um, would be between Ben O'Connor and Jack Haig right now. Um, I'd like to be able to see. I'd like to. I just uh, Jack. If I'd love to see him be able to have a tour without any major mishaps, just so he can have a good run and a, a real chance to show what he can do at the Tour. Um, don't want to put any pressure on him yet, but he's um, he's sort of our probably I think our best guy. Um, right here and now who's racing the pro ranks and then coming after that um look at a couple of younger guys i think jai hindley is obviously running second in the giro in uh, 2020 um and um um there's maybe one or two others who still haven't they haven't haven't quite had the chance to to let themselves show but we i'd like to think within 
if Jack or Ben can't do can't make the podium in the next sort of three to four years, within five years we we will have another talent rising that will will possibly be knocking on that door for the for the podium. Which step mm. of the podium? That's 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 another discussion. All right then. <clears throat> so if that that uh, time frame is three to five years, um, what will it take? to win the Tour de France over that next three to five years that's different than when you won in 2011? Hmm. Um, I think from what I see, and, and Bobby, I'd be interested in your opinion on this because you're working uh, much closer with professional athletes than I am, but what I see now is what the focus, uh, the training specificities, the um, what I did in in terms of my attention to detail in 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, um, what I was doing, what maybe you were doing as well as a rider, Bobby, some were doing, but not that many to the extent that we were. We were quite focused and motivated and uh, and, and looking to every detail to, to, to maximise our possibility to perform. What I see now is, and in the last few years, is Everyone on every team that's lining up at the tour is training specifically. They're working with a dietitian. Their biomechanic positions are all set up by biomechanists. They're measuring everything to the millimeter and training specifically on their time trial bike at home regularly. And everyone's doing this now, whereas before it was maybe only the team leaders and not even maybe all of the team leaders. But now it's like number eight and number even number nine, number ten pick for the eight-man Tour de France squad. Uh, you couldn't have put it better. Um, I think back then the people that wanted to pay that much attention to detail, that was a voluntary thing. And that was the people that were ready for it. Now, sometimes I question if the riders really want that much specificity, right? Like, like you said, if you're eight or nine or 10 on a long list to do the tour, do you really need to be away from your, your family for three extra months to do altitude training? Do you really want to weigh your food? Do you really want to, you know, basically live, live like a monk? So, you know, sometimes I question, you know, we did that stuff because that's the way our minds worked and we liked it. But like if it's getting stuffed down you th your throat, I wonder sometimes if these kids are actually really enjoying the sport of cycling the way that we did. Um, you know, for many years now, people are like, oh, professional cycling, it's, it's a robotic lifestyle. And honestly, you know, now that we're all on the other side of the barriers, it's easier to, to look back on the kids inside the barriers and say, they're doing this wrong or they're doing this right. But um, you're right. It's uh, a world full of specificity and data streams that hopefully are still fun for this generation of riders. Mm. I, yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I just think um, the, in summary, the sacrifices are so much higher now to be at the top level than what they maybe that there were some people making as much sacrifices like you said in our time but now everyone has to make these sacrifices but in the end i think it's going to come out in career longevity where people are going to get to age 28 or 29 they're like yeah i love the sport and this but i want to have family or i have family or and i just want to i just want to be a normal person rather than be away for 11 months a year at altitude camps and things and especially with of course the pandemic period for the I remember talking to some of the guys the first year and they're like, I've had 50 uh, CPR tests this year. <laughs> what's, going on, what's going on with the nasal cavities? Are they, can, can they survive that? Never alone that. <laughs> Sacrifices and time away they're making behind. Because oh, they, they were going into, the, into their race or the training camp bubble and they were coming out two months later. <laughs> the, the only people they got to speak to was like the, the staff on the team and their teammates. As as one not so young rider put it to me, it's like, oh yeah, but yeah, you're only like zooming with your fiance or something for eight week period leading up to the leading up and, and including the tour. It's like, oh, I kind of miss that. I must say, um, when I retired, I also the last one or two years of my career, I felt like um, like a dinosaur, like a you know a species that is about to extinct. Like honestly, 
who needs somebody? I mean, you would like to have my power, my engine in the team, but who would need a cyclist that attacks because the sun is shining? Or he goes, oh, look at the yellow house on the right side off the road. I'm going to go now. You can't do it anymore these days, right? It's the voice in your radio goes, Jens, no, you don't go now. Jens, you go now. You do five minutes at 375 watts. And then you do two minutes at 500 watts. And then your day is done. You know, and I, I think I, I got out of time. I got out in time for myself. I'm not saying cycling is worse or better. It's just different. And I would find it hard to adapt to this new style. I'm not saying, not judging. I'm not saying it was better, it was worse before or now. But it, it, it is just different, I guess. Certainly diff different, that's for, for sure. I think we've just seen, and like Bobby was touching on, yeah, the sacrifices and the, the concentration has just increased and increased and increased. And what when I would go back to like 2008, 2009, you'd go to altitude camp and you'd do your course reconnaissance things and... No, of course I'm going to get in the first ten. That's no problem. <laughs> now just to, now just to be a helper to a guy in the first ten, they they have to do all of that and more. Um, but that's that's changed, and I, I suppose we were used to what we were used to, and and of course to to adapt. And you speak with riders the generation or two generations before us, and they all say, "Oh, my period was <laughs> the best," for whatever reasons. <laughs> and so. Um, but oh well, we we we, we um, without spe speaking like people are all too old. But you know, as our grandparents always said, oh, back in my day, you never did that. Ah, oh, back in the good day, <laughs> you're right. You're right. Well, Cadell, man, thanks again for jumping on. Um, happy belated birthday, by the way. We understand it's still your birthday right now here in America, oh, in America. and in Germany. Course, yeah, but you. you're you're a day oh, ahead, so. Yeah. I could say happy birthday, but it's actually belated birthday for you. So um, yeah. you have well, a, a wonderful, uh, well, it's not your birthday anymore. It's not Valentine's Day for you anymore either. So I'll just stop there. But thank you so much again for, for coming on. It's always, always a pleasure. And um, yeah, you are the first part two and um, didn't disappoint. Thanks for having me back as the first part two, Bobby Yens. Stay healthy, stay well, and um, great to speak with you. And we'll, we'll be in contact, of course, for probably not for part three, but I want to come back to Greenville as well, Bobby. It's been it's been a while. Yep, you're it's more than welcome. While, so when 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 travels are open again, we're we're all looking forward to coming back. Thanks very much again, guys, and we'll speak again soon. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you, Cadet. Thanks. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Cadell for coming back as our guest. Thanks a million for listening. Please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. As always, this show was a Bella News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. Mm -hmm.